Will China help Russia through sanctions? Can China afford helping Russia? Is China's new digital yuan or other similar workarounds capable of empowering Russia to evade global sanctions? And what are their possible limitations? Today we sit down with Dr. Antonio Grisefel, China analyst, author and a professor of economics to talk about the economic impacts of the sanctions on Russia and to what extent China is able to help Russia through the global siege. We also talk about the prospect of China and Russia becoming ever more isolated politically and economically as the Ukraine crisis drags on and how now might just be the right time to decouple from the authoritarian powers. Dr. Grisefel, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Gary, thank you for having me. So right now, the world is sort of pouring sanctions on, on Russia and kind of by the looks of it, they're really trying to decimate the Russian economy. And as this is going on, a lot of eyes are on the Chinese Communist Party and whether it is helping Russia by offsetting the effects of the sanctions. Your reflection on the prospect of this? Well, initially, it looked very much like China was uh, not only planning to offset the sanctions, but they actually signed several agreements right before the invasion. So it's even possible that China knew about the invasion, that uh, perhaps she and Putin had had some kind of a talk, and she may have said, you know, we we, we got your back, we will... uh, uh, they signed an agreement to increase their cooperation. They signed another agreement to increase the purchase of uh, gas and energy uh, from Russia to dramatically increase it and to increase trade over the next five years. So basically, it looked like they were setting up sort of a, an economic shield to protect Russia against sanctions that might come from the Ukraine invasion. Now, a couple of things have happened since the Ukraine invasion. One is that as a... Uh, I'm not an absolute expert on military matters, but I I am a veteran and and I do do some reporting on, you know, defense-related issues. And what it looks like to me that the original plan of Putin's invasion was that they were going to use very targeted, uh, specialized attacks, maybe special forces, uh, limited engagement, but in such a way as to cripple the country very quickly and take over very quickly. And I don't think they were planning for a protracted war. because Ukrainian people have fought back so hard and because NATO has rallied around the United States and they're supporting Ukraine, suddenly this war is dragging on a lot longer than what I believe uh, Russia was planning. And I think that that has changed the complexion of the invasion and also then the economic uh, implications. And I don't think anybody was able to predict that NATO and the EU and you know Japan and many countries around the world would suddenly be rallying to the U.S. position. I, I believe that U.S. hegemony, U.S. U.S. Uh, uh, power, political influence has increased dramatically over the last three weeks. We're, we're back in a place where we were maybe 20 years ago, which which was not the case a month ago, two months ago, when when I really felt like the world was very much divided on the U.S. and suddenly they're on the U.S. side, and now they're all coming forward with sanctions. And a lot of these sanctions are things that say the UN vote. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, EU voted on. But some of them are just individual sanctions. Individual countries are bringing their own sanctions, uh, independent of anything that the EU decided on. Uh, Individual companies are boycotting Russia, cutting off Russia. So the economic damage that's being done to Russia is just absolutely catastrophic relative to the uh, Russian economy. So I think that part of the issue with the Xi-Putin economic alliance was that she was planning to make up maybe $100 billion of, of damage that was going to be done to to Russia. Meanwhile, what we're looking at is 
most of the Russian economy being absolutely destroyed. So we get 30% of the Russian economy is exports. And now, first of all, I'd like to say, Russian economy is quite small. For the relative importance of Russia, I mean, it really is one of the most important countries in the world. But their uh, GDP is very small. I mean, I think it's something like $1.6 trillion, uh, which is, you know, about a tenth of, of the U.S. economy. You know, it's a fraction of the Chinese economy. So initially, I think she was looking at making up differences of like $100 billion. Well, 30% of their economy is exports. But that whole sector may be gone now because um, there are specific boycotts and sanctions preventing certain types of exports. A lot of the conservatives and, and um, sort, of, sort of people on the right spectrum, the uh, uh, Republican spectrum of the U.S. are saying, we didn't go far enough, we need to sanction all their oil. And I don't necessarily disagree with that, but what I will say is that with the economic sanctions that are in place, it's going to be very difficult for Russia to be able to do international trade settlements. So this means that even if they're theoretically allowed to sell a particular product, whether it be oil or something else, they won't actually be able to collect the money for that. So that becomes an effective sanction. So without actually saying you're not allowed to sell or buy or sell oil, what we are saying is, well, you're not allowed to use our banking system or the international trade systems to, uh, to settle your trades. Well, this effectively becomes a boycott on oil or anything else. As a result, you know, this at least maybe 30, 40 percent of the Russian economy, if not more, that has just been wiped out by the sanctions. And then you have voluntary sanctions, companies like Visa and MasterCard that have pulled out their services from Russia. And, and if they can't uh, trade internally, right, that's what percentage of the GDP now that's gone. Maybe another 30% of their GDP is internal uh, uh, consumption. And about half of that is probably done through credit cards and, and bank transfers and things. And that's gone now. So uh, China said, uh, well, 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 we'll give you union pay. You know, we'll, we'll give you union pay. That'll be the workaround. We'll give you union pay cards. Well, if you live in China, you think union pay or, or uh, WeChat pay or, uh, you know, any of these things, you, you think this is the world because you can do everything through it. And, and there's nobody who doesn't have it. It's, you know, it's, it's got 100% penetration in the population. You can use it everywhere. Uh, when you go abroad, uh, a lot of Chinese people are falsely led to believe that union pay is accepted all over the world. I, you know, I went to Kathmandu, I went to New York, I went here, Paris, I used my union pay card. Well, yes, you used a union pay card that had a visa logo on it. Uh, and the union pay cards that are being issued in Russia now will not have visa logos on them. They will not be international union pay cards. They will just be regular Chinese union pay cards. China has said that they're going to step up sort of issuing these things in Russia. I don't know how long that's going to take. They have to set up all the, you know, the, the hardware, the software, and then it's got to communicate with Russian banks. They're going to have to set up assurances through the banks. They're going to have to be hacker-proof because these are the two countries most famous for hacking, uh, the two countries most famous for zero transparency. Um, I can't imagine that even internal union pay cards are going to be, be available immediately or, or not in large numbers. So what we're looking at is the Russian economy being cut by at least 30, 40, 50 percent. And it reflects in the, in the currency, right? Because we see the currency dropping by about 40 percent. Is there any country on earth that can really afford to support another country? You know, you know, China effectively supports North Korea, but it's a really small country and it supports them at a very low level of subsistence existence, right? 
can anybody support a country of 200 million people or in excess of 200 million people or whatever the size of the Russian, Russian Federation is? Can anybody support that? Just write a check every month. You know, this is like a, a family that, you know, when, when, you, when, when your kid is living at home and, and they're buying toys and school clothes and whatever, you can afford to support them. When they move out on their own and they need to buy a house and get married and support a family, you know, unless you're just incredibly wealthy, you, you know, you can't afford to do that. They have to become self-sufficient. So I don't think China can support the Russian economy. I don't think they can bring it back to the, the level that it was. And of course, remember that the standard of living in Russia, it's higher than, than a lot of the world, but it's dramatically lower than the standard of living, you know, in the U.S. or uh, probably Japan, Korea, you know, Taiwan, the major, major uh, democratic uh, democracies, uh, um, which have, um, you know, free market economies. Um, so I think that China's plan may have changed because of that, because they realized the, the magnitude of this problem that they need to solve. Or it may be that China, you know, everyone's saying China is looking at the U.S. response to Russia vis-a-vis -vis Ukraine to determine whether or not they're going to invade Taiwan. That probably is very true. Now, everybody said that to mean that if we were not strong against Russia in Ukraine, if we did not come with harsh sanctions, it would embolden China to take Taiwan. And while I believe that's true, I also believe that what's happened, something that nobody could have planned for, was the... Uh, effectiveness of these sanctions because when when they originally announced they were going to uh, bring sanctions against Russia I rolled my eyes and said oh great what are they going to do ban uh, the imports of ski equipment in Tunisia and this is somehow going to going to you know convince Russia to pull out of Ukraine you know and uh, and I just kind of rolled my eyes because so many of the sanctions are just useless you know they're just um, giving lip service they're just uh, you know, signaling right but these are real sanctions that really hurt the economy and I don't think China ever planned or knew that this could even happen. And I think they're looking at this and they're saying, number one, we can't support the Russian economy to the tune of these sanctions. Number two, if the West were to embolden themselves to stand up to China in the same way and bring the same types of sanctions against China, uh, th there is no workaround. I mean, it would bring down even China. Even, you know, China is the number two economy, number three military power, and it would bring them down. I mean, we see how effective these... If you can't buy and sell your products, I don't understand where your income is going to come from, right? You know, you look at what the, what the pandemic did to countries. I mean, th this is that times, times a thousand, you know, and I think that that may also have caused China to, to change their position. And a point that, that I found quite interesting was, um, you know, China in 2014, when Russia annexed Crimea, uh, they signed, a few months later after Russia's invasion, they signed the power of Siberia, um, the, the natural gas bill, and then it worth somewhere along the lines of $400 billion. Um, and, and, you know, would you, would, do you think we would see a similar um, scenario here where, you know, China, whether it's now or in a few months, Yes, well, they've already signed two agreements. So one was that they, they signed a reaffirmation of the, uh, they don't call it the Iron Brotherhood, I forgot what they call it, the galvanized friendship, whatever they call it. The, the Iron Brotherhood is the one they have with Pakistan. They signed a very similar one with uh, Russia just uh, about a week and a half before the invasion. And in that agreement, they agreed to increase their trade uh, by fourfold, I believe, over the next five years. So that is in place. And then the other one is the Power of Siberia 2 gas pipeline, which will increase the amount of uh, petrol energy gas that uh, China will be buying from Russia. 
um, by I believe a hundred or hundred fifty billion dollars and I believe the trade agreement may have been that they're going to increase the trade to something like 400 billion so those two agreements are already in place and I th and like I said I believe that when they signed those they probably believed that's all they needed to do and I think they didn't understand the damage that was going to be done to Russia which is more than that now right because if, if we've cut their GDP by half then we're looking at something like $750 billion or $800 billion that needs to be done. And the other thing is, if you're Vladimir Putin, do you really want to be completely dependent on China? Because that's basically what we would be talking about at this point. It would be yeah. you know, Russia yeah. would be a really, really big North Korea that can only trade with China. Is that what Vladimir Putin wants? Um, or does he have a choice even? even excuse me? Or does he have a choice even, um, you know, is, is that kind of the only viable alternative that he's facing at this point? Yeah, I mean, look, look, it may be the only viable alternative. You're very, you're, you're very correct. That may be the only viable alternative, but I'm sure it's not something he wants or likes, right? So, so I, I can't predict his behavior. I don't know that that means he's going to lash out with nukes or he's going to double down on his military offensive because I don't know how that would solve his economic problems. But basically, he's being faced with a fatal alternative, right? Your two options are you can starve or you can be 100% dependent on China or option C that I don't know what it is, right? And so I, I can't imagine Putin is willingly going to become dependent on China. The other issue is that China would have monopsony power as a single buyer. They would be able to set the price of gas. Now, right now, the conventional wisdom, which is wrong but the conventional wisdom is that because less gas will be flowing from Russia to Europe the supply of gas in the world has decreased the uh, uh, demand for Greece uh, for, for gas remains the same so the price should go up and that's why the price is going up right now actually the price is going up uh, artificially it doesn't have to go up because China has agreed to buy the excess gas from Russia which means China's demand for gas hasn't changed. So if they're buying from Russia, it means they're not buying from someone else, which means that the world uh, supply of gas should remain the same and the price should remain the same. Unfortunately, you know, OPEC has, has a lot of power here to, to control the price of gas. Now, I have seen that Biden administration is negotiating with Venezuela and Iran to, um, to buy gas from them or, or to have them sell to Europe or something like this to, to ease the sanctions on them, which I think is a brilliant stroke because it will pull them back into the American sphere and it will bring down the price of gas in the world. But as the price of gas increases in the world, if China's a monopsony buyer from Russia, China will be able to dictate the price of Russian gas. So if we did wind up in a scenario that the rest of the world is paying $5 a gallon for petrol or uh, paying whatever three hundred dollars a barrel for you know for petroleum, uh, you know China could just set whatever price they want with Russia, right? So they would be able to produce their products even cheaper and release them on the world market. So 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 that would be sort of my doomsday scenario as an economist that I think we could absolutely decimate Russia, but that China could actually benefit from the situation. Now, if the world leaders, particularly the U.S., but if the world leaders stand up to OPEC and say, listen, it's just not true that the world supply of gas has decreased because of this conflict uh, and you need to bring the price back down or you need to just step up your own production so that we can keep the price low. 
right? Which which it seems like that is what's going to happen. So so I think it's going to the price in the West probably is going to level off. Inflation's going to level off. I think we'll have some permanent inflation, but I think it will level off at some point. And I think that China will be able to have access to some cheap gas from from Russia, but I don't know how much. And the other thing is that the power of Siberia two pipeline isn't finished yet. They're still building it, and the way that they're uh, financing it, it's typical BRI, uh, Belt and Road Initiative financing. China's loaning the money to Russia. It's $255 billion, I believe. They're loaning it to Russia. Russia has to pay it back at interest. Um, and they'll pay it back through gas exports, which allegedly it'll be paid off by 2055. So again, I, is Putin willing to put his country on the hook for so much money for a period of 30 years? Um, I don't know. And then this um, Power Siberia 2 is going to run through through Mongolia here, and Mongolia will pick up a little bit of money for um, the transshipment of, of the pipeline, well, the same way that um, Ukraine was, was getting about $2 billion a year for uh, some of the pipelines that are running through, through Ukraine. So let's say China actually decides to help Russia. Uh, what's the implication of this to the Chinese economy? The implications for the Chinese economy are very much dependent on the spine and commitment of the West. So under our sort of sanction rules, uh, if somebody violates the sanctions, they would then be sanctioned. So theoretically, someone who bypasses, or any international actor that bypasses the sanctions and trades with Russia in the areas that are sanctioned or, or, or prohibited, that they should be sanctioned. And the question is, does the West, does the, does the United States in particular, have the spine, have the strength, have the, the, the commitment to sanction China, would they? Very sadly, historically, the West has always had two sets of standards. They have the rules, and then they have the rules that apply to China. And this is everything from the WHO to the WTO to... to I, I want you to say any three letters that come out of your mouth, and I'll say that's another example. Uh, every world organization has two sets of rules, and somehow when China violates the rules, they get a pass. So I think, too, I think one of the things we'll see over the next weeks, we will see China testing the waters. I feel, but of course I can't read what's in Xi Jinping's mind, but I feel that China is aware that these sanctions are serious, that they may have implications for China, but just given their experience, I think they're going to test the waters. And I think you'll read in the paper in the next few days, China did this or that to work around the sanctions or to help Russia. And then we'll see what the West's reaction is. And then if we show a weak reaction to China testing the waters, China will then step up their workarounds, right? They'll do more of these workaround uh, behaviors. And it will sort of nullify a lot of the sanctions. It won't nullify all of them. So I think that, I think that no matter what happens, Russia will not be made whole. But I think that if China finds a way to work around the sanctions, and if we let them get away with that, that then does have implications for Taiwan. Because then China will say, okay, there's ways to get around this. I'm not afraid of the sanctions. I could go ahead and invade Taiwan or do anything else I want to do, invade Ladakh. You know, India right now is, um, you know, Indian intellectuals uh, have raised very reasonable uh, uh, you know, uh, complaints about the United States. And they said, look, last year, in 2020, 2021, China invaded our territory, and you told us, please find a diplomatic solution. You know, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine, 
and you're supporting them wholeheartedly and you're bringing sanctions and you're doing this and that. And um, you know, India really is one of the keys in this geopolitical game uh, to oppose China. We want India on our side. India also hates the CCP and we want them on our side. And I think that we really need to uh, do something nice for India right now. I think we need to hold a birthday party, surprise party, give them a gift, something. We need to do something very nice for India right now. I'd say to them, you are one of us, you're on our side. We'll give you some sort of free trade, we'll give you something. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the sanctions on China or the threat of sanctions on China will also depend on how many other countries are willing to violate the sanctions. So if we don't, act to make sure that India and Vietnam, who are very dependent on Russia, if we don't act to make sure that they come firmly into our sphere, same thing with Iran, Venezuela, if we could bring them back into our sphere, then even if China said, hey, I got this workaround, I have a way I can trade this and that, well, those countries won't do it because they won't violate the sanctions, right? Because we need many people on these alternative systems for them to work. Like China has, the SWIFT, of course, is the big that's the big nuclear option. If we pull Russia off the SWIFT or if we pull China off the SWIFT, they won't be able to do international trade settlement. They won't be able to buy or sell anything, right? Now, China has a SWIFT alternative. Russia actually has one as well, but they're very small and there's almost no countries on it. So it only works if other countries join it. So the fear is that if we don't bring harsh enough sanctions, China will say to India and, and Vietnam, listen, why don't you guys join this, this SWIFT alternative that I built and then we can continue to trade no matter what those Yankees say. And that, that's the SIP. Sorry. sorry, sorry, that's the SIP system, right? I think that's what it's called. Right. The, the Chinese one is the CIPS system, SIP system. And then uh, Russia has one as well. And uh, it's basically only got some of the former Soviet states on it, a few of the Central Asian republics, and I believe Armenia is on it. And then, you know, China has one. And um, China has uh, a few systems that I've seen Western media claiming, oh, this could be their workaround. You know, there's 85 gazillion users on this system. I'm like, well, yeah, it's 85 gazillion users inside of China. <laughs> These are domestic systems. And anything you point at in China is very big, right? China is very, very, very big. You know, I live there. You can't count all the people. Um, so when you look at things like WeChat Pay or something, you know they'll actually use I mean, like like the CCP mouthpieces, the you know, the the uh, the, uh, the Golden Times or Xinhua or whatever. They, they, they'll say um, or Global Times. They'll say things like um, you know WeChat Pay is the world's biggest you know payment system. Yeah, but it's only in China and it's the biggest because you forced everyone to use it. They're not allowed to do anything else. But the rest of the world is not under those constraints. And the other issue with China is that China has very strict capital controls. They're terrified of capital flight. No matter what happens, upside down, sideways, uh, you know, if Russia wins, China wins, up, down, whatever it is, the U.S. dollar is still the world's currency and still the safe haven. And U.S. debt is still the place where people invest their money, 66% of uh, uh, global currency reserves are in U.S. dollars, and I don't care what SIPS system, international trading platform China sets up, the U.S. dollar is still where wealthy people are going to want to put their money, and not even wealthy people, just people are going to want to put their money in the U.S. dollar. And for any of these international trading systems to work, China is going to have to remove their capital controls. And as soon as they do that, money is going to flow out of China like meth is going to flow into the U.S. And as an economist, 
I would graph this with my students and I would say, if that happens, what happens to the world supply of RMB? The world supply of RMB will increase, which will drive down the price of the RMB. What will happen to the world supply of dollars? It will decrease, which will drive up the price of the US dollar. Right? So China can threaten that they want to set up these world trading platforms, but if they're going to do it, then they have to release these trading, uh, their, uh, their capital flight restrictions, which is something that they've never wanted to do. So I think that anyone who's claiming that China has very good workarounds or Russia has very good workarounds is not thinking it through step by step. There's about five basic options on the table for workarounds, and none of them are very good. Most of them would work best if Russia agreed to drop the ruble and adopt the yuan, which I, I can't even imagine that happening. If, if, if it drops to you know, a million ruble to the dollar, I, I still can't imagine Russia ever agreeing to do that. And interestingly, even Zimbabwe, at the peak of their uh, 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 hyperinflation, where, where uh, it, it, it was a joke that journalists, when they had nothing to write about, they would go interview Zimbabwe's newest millionaire, and it was a guy who just changed $100 or something at the bank, and now he has a million you know, Zimbabwe dollars, right? And yeah. even at that point, the CCP offered them yuan, and they said, thank you, and we're going to convert them to dollars. And, and I guess the, the CCP, they've been trying to promote the yuan around the world for, for quite a while now, and that, that hasn't been quite su successful, has it? That's correct. Uh, in 2015, the, the IMF agreed to accept the, uh, the yuan, as the fifth currency in the special drawing rights currency. So the IMF has this basket of currencies that um, countries can borrow. So you can borrow, um, the SDR is not like a, a, a currency in the sense that, that there's no paper SDR, but on paper they would say to you, you're allowed to have a, a thousand SDRs. And what you would do then, you'd go to the IMF, they'd give you a basket of US dollars, uh, euros, yuan, British pounds, and Japanese yen which together would total $1,000 or whatever the amount of SDR they, they, they were allowing you to have. So the yuan was added to this basket. So that means officially the yuan is an international currency. It was, I believe the agreement was signed in 2015, but it actually was added in 2016. So China had hoped that this would be the internationalization of the yuan, but it hasn't been. Um, as far as currency reserves around the world, it's still well under 3% that are held in yuan. International trade settlement, still less than 3% is in yuan. Uh, there is no country outside of China that has adopted the yuan as an official currency, not even the official currency, but as an official currency. There's about, I believe, eight countries that use the U.S. dollar as their official currency, but I think there's about 12, maybe, or more that have the U.S. dollar as an official currency. Now, you can use U.S. dollars in lots of countries. Like, you can go to Laos, and they will often price things in dollars because it's just easier, because it's, you know, thousands to the dollar, and, it's, you know, the numbers become ridiculous. You want to buy a TV, and it's like millions. The same thing in Vietnam. You go to Vietnam, it's like millions to buy a TV. Um, but, and they'll even accept dollars, but it's not an official currency. But dollars are used everywhere. But there are countries like Cambodia has two official currencies. The U.S. dollar is one of them. Panama has the U.S. dollar. And Nicaragua has the U.S. dollar. So they're countries that actually use the U.S. dollar as currency. Nowhere in the world has anybody agreed to use yuan as currency. And nowhere in the world has anyone agreed to keep uh, tremendous amounts of yuan as currency reserves. And even Cambodia, the um, CCP offered Cambodia 
to make the yuan their third official currency, and they said no. And I mean, they, they, you know, uh, Cambodia is essentially a puppet state of China at this point, and they said no. So the yuan has made absolutely no traction as an international currency. Now, there's a lot of speculation in Western media that this crisis will aid the internationalization of the yuan. Well, again, I believe that they may find a currency workaround or trade workaround with Russia where they may do trade settlement in yuan. But China doesn't want to hold rubles. So I'm not really sure what that's going to look like. So would this mean that maybe China would do a lot of purchases from Russia in yuan and then Russia would hold yuan and then use yuan to do settlement with Russia, uh, with uh, China when they buy things from China, right? So, so they would have sort of like a dual currency system going on where Russia would use rubles internally, but, but they would hold tremendous amounts of yuan in reserves, which they would use for trading with China. That may be, and that may be what the workaround winds up being. But that, to me, does not connotate the internationalization of the yuan, because no one else is going to do it. Would then Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan and, and, and all of the you know, Central Asian republics who trade heavily with Russia, would they suddenly trade with Russia using yuan? Does that really make a great deal of sense and would they agree to do it? And if they did, again, is that really the internationalization of the yuan? I mean, the internationalization of the yuan will occur when countries in the Americas and Western Europe or even Africa, start using the yuan for trading, which they're just not doing. I, I just don't see it happening as a result of this crisis. And uh, there's something that's quite intriguing to myself. It, it, the CCP recently has just introduced or tried to introduce a digital version of the yuan, and it's, with the, it's highly centralized controlled. Um, would this affect the confidence uh, on the subject that we're speaking about? Um, the confidence of countries around the world say we, we don't want to hold yuan that's basically 100% controlled by the central government. So doesn't this go against the China's kind of their attempts to internationalize the yuan? I don't know that it goes against, but, but you've, definitely, you've, you've definitely identified the problem. The problem is that the digital yuan will have, as far as internationalization, has all the same issues as the regular yuan because there's nobody who's saying you know what, I don't trust the yuan, but I trust the digital yuan. You know, so it has all the same problems as the yuan, plus all the problems of being a cryptocurrency, and then add to that that it is a centrally controlled, open ledger, um, government-controlled digital currency. So if you look at, you contact any of these media that support digital currency, uh, and you ask them, what are the top 10 benefits of digital currency? Why do we need this? Why is this good for the world? And one of the primary, you know, the top 10 is, oh, you live off the grid. You know, the government has no control over what you're doing. And, and you know, you can transfer a million dollars to your friend through your phone. Uh, you know, the government would never know about it. And I think, well, first of all, only criminals would ever need to do that. Second of all, I need friends like that. Uh, the average person doesn't need to transfer a million dollars. But... It turns out that's absolutely not true. The FBI uh, very recently was able to, um, to trace uh, a whole chain of, of, of um, uh, transfers of cryptocurrency that were being used. I don't remember if it was uh, funding drugs or terrorism or something, and then they arrested everybody. 
And that's with regular cryptocurrency. With government cryptocurrency, sovereign cryptocurrency, the CCP will have complete control and, and complete knowledge of every step of the movement of that currency. So that uh, perceived benefit of being off the grid, out of government control, that is nullified by digital yuan. So that's problem A. Problem B is that it's cryptocurrency. So it has to be exchangeable on one of these crypto exchanges. None of them have direct convertibility to the digital yuan. So right now, if you went, if you wanted to purchase digital, digital yuan exists now. It's being used inside of China. It's, it's taking off slowly in China because they already have Alipay. If you already have Alipay and Weixin Pay, why do you need cryptocurrency? If you look at, again, the 10, I, I've done two articles where I, where I contacted, I don't remember how many of these uh, proponents of cryptocurrency, they tell me the 10 reasons why I should use uh, a crypto, and seven of them were covered by Alipay or, or, or WeChat Pay. It's, oh, you do it from your phone, you don't have to use currency, you, you, know, you transfer it anyway. Yeah, I can do all that. I do that with, with, with WeChat already, right? Why do I need digital yuan? All right, so that's problem number one in China. Outside of China, then for that to actually be viable as an international cryptocurrency, what well, has to be exchangeable on these crypto exchanges, none of them are offering direct convertibility between uh, cryptocurrencies and, and digital yuan. So the way it has to be done right now is unregistered crypto exchanges where you would basically give them custody of your cryptocurrencies or, or I assume also cash, you know, um, uh, perhaps uh, electronic uh, transfers of, of real currency, but they would take control of your money and then somehow they buy their digital yuan in China through another intermediary and then somehow they pass the digital currency to you, but it, the whole thing would be unregistered and every step of the way the intermediaries could steal your money and of course there would be fees and everything, and then you'd be holding digital yuan, and then what would you do with it, right? What would you do with it? Why would you want to hold this digital yuan? So, so digital yuan is one of the potential workarounds that a lot of Western media have identified. They, they, there's about five major workarounds that they think you know Russia and China might use. One of them is digital yuan, but that's the problem with digital yuan. The other one is that, specifically in the case of Russia, is that most of the trading platforms have very low pairing for rubles. In other words, uh, if you're trading with rubles and you want to buy cryptocurrencies, there's very low limits of, of what you can do. And the people that um, are supporting cryptocurrency and, and, and pushing, oh, this is the greatest thing since sliced bread, and you got to have this, they're thinking of themselves. These are... I, <laughs> You know, not, not to generalize, but I'm going to generalize. These are people who are uh, concentrating on their own personal lives on the internet, and they're buying and selling. Uh, for example, Steam. They're going on Steam. They're buying video games. And they're buying swords that their characters use in the video game realm. And these are the kind of people that are very, very into cryptocurrency, and they're not thinking about trillions of dollars, right? There's almost no way to do trillions of dollars of transactions with any any cryptocurrency even even bitcoin you can't you can't run a country through bitcoin yet and i don't know that you ever will be able to we're talking about running a country we're not talking about individuals you know paying for movie tickets or something like this or buying products from from you know amazon 
right? So they aren't thinking it through. They're, they're pointing cryptocurrency and, and they're saying, oh, that's a possible workaround. Yeah, it's a possible workaround for thousands of dollars, maybe a million dollars, not trillions, right? So then the other one is the digital uh, ruble. And, and I love this. Top five workarounds include the digital ruble, which will be released later this year. So, so that's actually not a work workaround then, is it? Because it doesn't exist yet. So it's the digital ruble, which will have all the problems of being a ruble, plus all the problems of being a digital currency, and it doesn't exist yet. And, and that's in the top five possible workarounds. You know? So if that's in your top five best uh, options, it seems to me like Russia has very few options. Yeah, it makes a makes a catchy uh, catchy headline there. <laughs> it, it seems like it seems like they're too increasingly kind of isolated. Even in terms of the economics, isolated camps of powers. Um, I mean, if this thing drags on, maybe it's difficult for China to to not to be essentially involved in this. And um, you know, do you see? Um, do you see China kind of going towards the direction of even economic isolation? I mean, let's say given the hypothetical scenario that um, it, the world starts kind of to decouple from, from it. I, yeah, it's a very good question. And, uh, it, you know, China is in a very schizophrenic state right now. You know, um, world opinion at the beginning of COVID, it seemed like world opinion was shifting towards China and there was just a lot of propaganda on the internet and oh look how well China handled the virus and China's saving the world and they're sending us test kits and they're doing this and they're doing that and oh you know the, 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 the US is um, you know is failing behind China and all this and um, it just looked like China was just, just uh, their, their soft power was growing and everybody was shifting towards the China camp and then a few, a few months ago, thank God, it just seemed like everything turned on a dime and everybody in the world started blaming China, turning away from China reasonably and, and correctly. And all of their criticisms were absolutely justified. But um, she originally, you know, they, they were trying to build the economy through exports and they were building China's soft power. And I don't know how closely you monitored this, but let's say from 2012, 13, 14, 15, China's soft power was growing just so fast. It seemed like everything they touched turned to gold. They had the Confucius Institutes, they had uh, propaganda videos on the internet. When they released the uh, the 13th five-year plan, they, they, they had this uh, catchy rap video and they had uh, cartoons and all this. And I was like, oh my goodness, the whole world's falling into China's orbit. And, and uh, articles were popping up, like little school systems in Nebraska and places you've never heard of. And suddenly there's like a Chinese, you know, minister of whatever visiting that town. And, you know, they're, they're putting a, a Confucius or the equivalent in like the elementary school there. And, and uh, the kids are watching the, uh, the um, China Victory Day Parade or, you know, whatever, the October 7th or 10th or whatever. And I was like, oh, my God, China's taking over the world. And thank God all that stuff is just crumbled. Like, there, there's so few Confucius Institutes left in the U.S. and Europe. And so China's soft power is dwindling. So then suddenly she announced about a year ago that they were no longer going to have an export-driven economy. They were going to have a consumption-driven economy. And, you know, I really think part of that was because the world opinion was turning on China. A lot of companies were leaving China. Also, China has priced themselves out of the market for for low-end manufacturing. And the problem with high-end manufacturing is that China steals your intellectual property. 
And then there's all the capital flight issues and restrictions. There's so many restrictions doing, doing business with China. So that a lot of companies were leaving voluntarily. Uh, a lot of them were being driven out, squeezed out. And then with soft power issues, uh, oh, and also the sanctions against Xinjiang suddenly. And you don't want to be the company that agrees publicly to not use slave labor from Xinjiang and then suddenly discover or have the blogosphere, the internet, discover that you're using slave labor from Xinjiang and didn't know it, right? So this is happening to companies too where they're suddenly implicated in these, in these, uh, these atrocities, right? So Xi Jinping announced, um, no, we're going to change now to a consumption-driven economy. Okay, you can have a consumption-driven economy. Great. And then he announced we're going to have COVID zero. So we're going to have ongoing lockdowns of whole cities, of tens of millions of people. You can't predict it. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know when you're going to be locked down or for how long. And uh, somehow we're still going to have a consumption-driven economy. And you're not allowed to travel because that spreads COVID, apparently. Uh, and so we're going to decimate our tourism sector, which is 30% of our economy, or whatever it is, 18%, whatever it is in China. Uh, and we're going to have a consumption-driven economy. And we're going to have uh, record unemployment, and we're going to have a consumption-driven economy. And we're going to have supply chain disruptions that no one ever dreamed of. Because remember that these supply chain disruptions that the rest of us are feeling, I originally thought this was part of China's plan, right? That they were in, they were in a dark, smoky room, and we'll destroy the supply chains and wreck the Western economies, and, and we'll be the last man standing. And then I'm, I'm monitoring the Chinese economy, and I'm like, Man, they're getting hit harder than anybody else because every product you can't buy because of a supply chain disruption is a product China couldn't sell. Which one affects your economy worse? Not being able to buy or not being able to sell. You know, so China's got major problems. When you talk about supply chain disruption, it's affecting China worse than it is us. I mean, these are people turning up for, for work at the factory and the factory is saying, uh, no, we're not going to produce anything this week because either we're locked down for COVID or because our orders from last week couldn't, you know, go to the port, or they're at the port, but they couldn't go on the ship. You know, we couldn't export them, and we can't make new products until we clear out the old, and things like that, right? So you got record unemployment, you got whole cities being shut down. I'm still on the uh, the WeChat group for the NBA program that I graduated in China, and uh, they canceled classes this week. This is in Shanghai. They canceled classes because of the COVID situation. So, I mean, Shanghai, you know, and of course, there's the famous story that Something like 30,000 people got locked in Shanghai Disneyland because one person tested positive. Uh, you know, just ridiculous. How are you going to run an economy like that? And um, so they're going to have a consumption-driven economy, but then they're doing all these things that are going to destroy a consumption-driven economy. So I, I don't know what they're doing. I, I, I don't know if she knows what they're doing. And, you know, okay, so you're going to have an export-driven economy, then you need to actually manufacture and export things. And you probably need to make the rest of the world like you. And you don't seem to be interested in doing that anymore. And they used to really sugarcoat it and try and sell you on things and make you believe that these were good things they were doing for you. And it seems like now China is no longer even attempting to do that. Uh, during the Olympics, for example, I mean, they, 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 they really made no attempt during the Olympics to sugarcoat any of the censorship, any of the uh, you know, draconian lockdown, policy, nothing, you know. And, um, you know, you know, and, and I'm Italian, you know, uh, you know, I'm a U.S. citizen, but, you know, you know, I'm Italian, and, and, you know, parents are, uh, 
grandparents or anything from Sicily, and um, so was, you know I monitored Italy as well, and I felt very offended when there were videos released in the early days of COVID. Grazie Italia, uh, grazie Cina, grazie Cina. They were showing all these Italian people out on the street pledging their 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 thanks to Xi Jinping for saving them, and I was so angry. You know, and I said, how could my people do this? How could they be fooled into doing this? And of course, it turn, turns out they weren't, right? It was, it was a huge propaganda thing that China was doing. And of course, it backfired. Italy heard about it. Italy has the internet, too. They heard about it. They got angry. They launched protests with China. You know, so you get the whole world turning against China. And then China wants to have this internal economy. Then suddenly, very recently, China decided... Um, their economy, oh, they released their economic growth figures. They're only going to have 5.5% growth this year. So now she is saying, we need to increase exports. To, we have export-driven growth again. Well, how are you going to do that? And you're right. It seems like China's turning away from the world. They're sort of saying we don't need to. And they've actually said things like that. We don't need the, you know, to engage with the world. We'll engage with ourselves and do our own thing. Okay, great. You're turning away from the world. But now you want to have export driven growth again. Well, then you need to engage with the world again. So God knows. I mean, as, as, a, as a journalist, as an analyst, I mean, the nice thing is every week I got something new to write about. <laughs> but I have to be careful how I word it because I don't want anybody to say, I'm promising you that China's opening up and the next week they're closing. Oh, I'm promising you China's closing because it's, it's just absolutely schizophrenic what Xi Jinping is doing. And, and it, he has dual policies that are you know, conflicting at the same time. And I guess as a final remark, it seems like this is a pretty good point to, if the West wishes to decouple from China, this would, you know, doing doing so would have, I mean, it would it might push the two China and Russia together. Um, but do you think do you think this would be an effective choice at this point? And you know, just basically start decoupling uh, from the Chinese Communist Party. Oh, absolutely. We should absolutely start decoupling. Um, Let's say that China and Russia form a trading bloc and they trade with each other. So what? <laughs> right? China's biggest trading partners are the EU and the US. You know, so as an American, I generally don't like anyone saying that the EU is a block and that it's bigger than the US, right? Because it's not a single country and I feel like you know, you're kind of jimmying the statistics to make it look like the U.S. is less important. But in this case, I have to say, actually, the EU is a block, and it is bigger than the U.S. And uh, their trade with China is actually more than the U.S. trade with China. But to take the two away, take away the EU trade and the U.S. trade from China, I, this, this is a huge blow to their economy. I, you know, you're talking about 5.5% 5, 5 .5 GDP growth being low. Are you going to talk about negative GDP growth without the U.S. and China trade? And remember that about 40, between 40 and 55% of China's exports are not done by Chinese companies. They're done by foreign co companies that are in China. And then they're exporting to the U.S. or, or the EU uh, or other countries as well. And, and remember that Japan's a major trading partner of China. Taiwan's a major trading, you know, Singapore, you know. You know and, and so all of these countries, South Korea, they would all go with this US-EU block if that's what happens, right? So China would not be able to export. Uh, these foreign companies would leave China. So even if people wanted to trade with China, they just wouldn't have the products anymore. They wouldn't have the volume of trade to, to export anymore. And as I've been saying for, for all the years, you know, I've been working on the trade war since, since just before Donald Trump got elected. That's when I first started working for a think tank on the you know the trade war U.S. China trade, 
And what I've been saying from day one is that if the U.S. would encourage this manufacturing to leave China, and it doesn't matter what country it's from, it's from, from the U.S., it's from Holland, it's from, from whatever country has a factory in China, we would encourage them, listen, why don't you leave China? Well, why don't you move your factory to Indonesia? You know, and then we'll say to Indonesia, we're going to give you a bunch of manufacturing, it's going to help your economy, and then you'll move into our sphere and you'll join the Western nations and you'll join the U.S. And when we vote in the U.N. against, you know, genocide in Xinjiang, you'll vote with us, you know, and, and we'll give these benefits to the countries that, you know, that, 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 that enact democratic reforms within, the, within their own countries, that, uh, that reduce uh, corruption within their own countries, that begin to respect or increase their respect of the rules-based order. I mean, this is what we've always done, you know, and this is how we've had countries like, you know, Singapore and Thailand or whatever that, that, that are in our sphere of, of influence, right? And so we could give these benefits to countries like Vietnam and, and Indonesia. These are countries that are right on the cusp of making a transition to the next higher income band. They're increasing the, the quality of life for their citizens. We would like to see that, obviously. We, you know, we want to see the people in the world to, to be richer, to have a, have a better quality of life. Uh, our theory in the West you know, if it's true or not, the theory is as people get richer, they'll demand higher quality democracy from their leaders. They'll demand lower uh, corruption from their leaders. As the corruption decreases, it will increase Western investment into those countries because nobody wants to risk, you know, if, if you go open a country, if you go open a company in like Zambia or something or in, uh, you know, Congo, you're afraid of the political risk, right? This could be taken from you, or you could you, you you could show up. Good luck showing up in a court in Congo with a paper going. But this document, you know, this this contract says I own this factory. So yeah, good luck, good luck getting that enforced, right? But 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 in Singapore, you show up in the court and you show them that paper, and you know that it's going to be respected. And so what happens? Singapore becomes a country people want to invest in. Anyway, so I I feel that that we could decouple from China and we don't necessarily have to make it a, a, a definitive divorce, right? It could be more like a trial separation. We don't have to say, we are no longer friends with China and we're going to close all our embassies. Now, we don't want to do that, right? But let's set up incentives and encouragement, and some of it might be sanctions, that will drive the foreign investment from our allies out of uh, uh, China, and let's put it into other allies that are developing countries that would benefit from, you know, increasing their, their economy. And, uh, you know, Taiwan, for example, you know, if we start to sanction and cut off trade with, with um, China, we will also need to give something to Taiwan to help increase their trade, you know, elsewhere with the EU or, or whomever. But, uh, but yeah, I think we could definitely do that. And I think that um, the West can afford to do that. I think that we could lose our trade or, you know, dramatically reduce our trade with China and it wouldn't hurt us economically. It would benefit us and geopolitically it would benefit us. Well, Dr. Grashefel, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Thanks a lot, Gary. It's good to see you.